0: Hello and welcome to The Dot, Canada's internet podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Callahan. The Dot is a podcast that examines the good, the bad, and the amazing of Canada's internet. The Dot is brought to you by CIRA, the Canadian internet registration authority, We're working every day to build a trust internet for Canadians. On this episode, we chat with David Shipley, CEO of Boseron Security, about how COVID-19 has changed the cybersecurity landscape in Canada. We also chat about an interesting CIP project from the New Brunswick Community College that teaches K-12 students about how to combat cyber threats. But first, here's what's happening on Canada's internet. CIRA recently released our latest cybersecurity report. The annual report surveys 500 IT professionals from across the country to get their views on the cybersecurity landscape. This year, as you could expect because of the pandemic, there were some interesting findings. For example, just under 30% of respondents said their organization was targeted with COVID-19-themed cyber attacks, So think a phishing attack that said your COVID-19 results were in, or a link that offered a COVID-19 tracing app for download that was really just something that was trying to get you to download malware. Also, about 3 in 10 organizations saw a spike in the volume of attacks during the pandemic. And slightly more than half of all organizations implemented new cybersecurity measures in response to COVID-19. You can read more about the report at CIRA.ca slash cybersecurity-report-2020. CIRA also released another report recently, Unconnected, Funding Shortfalls, Policy Imbalances, and How They Are Contributing to Canada's Digital Underdevelopment. It's a long title with a very interesting premise. Basically, we found that there was a lack of funding for internet-related projects across Canada. Of course, many of you will know that CIRA itself funds internet-related projects across Canada. Unfortunately, the people we interviewed in the philanthropic community in Canada found that money was hard to access, not coordinated, and not nearly as plentiful as they would like. If you'd like to read more about this report, you can visit sierraca slash unconnected. Okay, on to our first interview. Today, I'm speaking with David Shipley, founder and CEO of Boceron Security, about how COVID-19 has completely changed the cybersecurity landscape in Canada. Okay, so today we have David Shipley, CEO and co-founder of Boceron Security, uh, out in beautiful New Brunswick. Uh, David, how are things in the bubble?
1: Uh, things are, are going really well, and we're feeling... Uh we always feel blessed to be Atlantic Canadians, but uh, never more so than 2020.
0: Great. Well, uh, those who have listened to this podcast a few times probably know by now that I'm an Islander. Uh, unfortunately, I wasn't able to make it down to PEI this year because of the, uh, because of the Atlantic bubble. Um, but we always know there's good people down in uh, Atlantic Canada, and we're glad you're all staying safe, even though the rest of us might be having a rougher time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> this hour is 22 minutes did a hilarious music video about the Atlantic bubble.
0: Oh, I haven't seen that yet. I'll have to check that out. Uh, So, David, I want to have you on the show because obviously, uh, as I'm sure you know, and a lot of our listeners know, uh, it's Cybersecurity Awareness Month. It's uh, a big month for some of our activities here at CIRA when it relates to cybersecurity. We had our big conference last week called Maplesec. Um, If anyone's not aware, you should check it out at maplesec.ca. There's a lot of resources you can check out there. Um, But I think Cybersecurity Awareness Month is really different this year because of, uh, you know, the COVID-19 environment that we're in. You know, has anything really changed uh, because of COVID-19 or is it just that things that were happening anyway are just that much more accentuated uh, due to the pandemic?
1: I, yeah, no, I, I think there are a number of key changes um, that are that have been accentuated by the pandemic. First of all, the general state of fear and anxiety in you know North America, at least, has never been higher. You know, we've never had to have this level of persistent uh, macro stress uh, on individuals, and that's causing um, people to be tired to make more mistakes, and we're seeing, you know, data from the Cira side of things as well as from uh, security companies like Tessian that show that. You know, when people are stressed, they make more mistakes. When they work from home, they make more mistakes that have cybersecurity implications. So the threat environment has changed dramatically. But that's not the only thing that's happening. We've also got the the criminal element is suffering a major economic change at the same time. If you look at the sectors that they love to target, small and mid sized businesses, many are closed. So many of the easy targets they've been able to go for, they've had to shift to other areas. And we're seeing. Healthcare just take an absolute bounding. I mean, just last week in the United States, of course, 250 hospitals were reduced to pen and paper after a major ransomware attack. And we've seen the same story across other critical sectors that are still open, whether it's higher education, government at the municipal, state, or national level, everyone has been bearing the brunt. And this has been a banner year for ransomware. we have got the uh, breach of Garmin, which was a $10 million heist, crippled that entire smartwatch GPS manufacturer. And now out of Germany, just this week, we learned that Software AG, one of the world's largest software firms, has been ransomware and looking at a $25 million ransom. So it's if you're thinking it's bad out there, it's not just you. It's worse than it's ever been.
0: Right. I guess there really is no honor amongst thieves if if they're now targeting hospitals and, and, and some of the institutions that they, they might not have uh, focused on before. How have those organizations sort of kept pace? I mean, I would think that a lot of hospitals would have a, you know, a, an IT security uh, footprint in place. But is there anything particular that they've had to do that you're aware of or any of the clients that you've talked to that they've anything they've had to change to to be more responsive to the to the new environment?
1: So in the healthcare sector, and, and I want to be very, very clear, specifically in the Canadian healthcare sector, the, the overworked, uh, under-resourced IT teams are, have been nothing short of heroic alongside their uh, counterparts on frontline healthcare in keeping Canadian hospitals and healthcare infrastructure running but they were never even close to being resourced for the growing threat before the pandemic hit. And the stresses of just trying to keep the lights on and support some of the complex things that healthcare institutions are being required to do um, today uh, has put them under even further strain. I, you know, some of the most progressive ones and some that we work with had long-standing strategies and plans and and had a bit of budget heading into this. Um, mm. But even those organizations have had to stagger rollouts of things like awareness and behavior change platforms like ours because uh, a health region they might want to train about cybersecurity that's actively being targeted is having an outbreak in that particular area, so they have to. Focus on the uh, physical, real, near-term risk, and um, hope and pray. Far too often, right now, is the primary defense for a lot of Canadian healthcare.
0: Right, and I would imagine the environment in those facilities, in hospitals and healthcare facilities, is a problem as well. I mean, there's obviously there's a bit of a fog of war element to, you know, obviously you've got patients and and emergencies and all kinds of you know real life danger happening and i think we heard a case over in germany where a patient actually died due to a, a, an attack on a hospital i guess that would make them uh, a pretty juicy target for someone who didn't have a lot of uh, scruples wouldn't it
1: absolutely and sometimes these hospitals like the düsseldorf university hospital in germany which is the world's first attributed death caused by a ransomware attack where the hospital was shut down and diverted traffic, and unfortunately, a woman died because the distance to the nearest hospital was too far to save her. I'm sure there's been other deaths caused by ransomware attacks uh, across the United States because we've, um, we've certainly seen those um, over the years have pretty dramatic impacts. This one is the first time we've been able to say that for sure, um, and, and for these organizations, you know the uh, the challenge is a hospital is not in the cybersecurity business. They're in the d- business of delivering life-saving and life-sustaining and life-preserving care. That's mission number one. And but they have to do that securely. It's not like preparing for an environmental or natural disaster threat. You're preparing against an adversarial environment. And and keep in mind, you know, normally in, in conflict, like rules of war, hospitals are off limit. And and normally criminals don't roll into a hospital to try and do a heist. But online, there are no norms, and all bets are off. And um, yeah, criminals are uh, wreaking havoc. And so. For hospitals, this is really hard because what's interesting is some research out of the United States that also shows over-rotating on security, um, over-allocating resources, and locking everything down can actually cause patient deaths as well. Because um, there was a study that showed that uh, cardiac outcomes suffered after a ransomware attack, not just because of the ransomware attack, but because they locked everything down and thus slowed uh, triage nurse and ER doctor access to patient records. It is not an easy position in healthcare. And one of the things when we talk about the importance of awareness and behavior change in healthcare is fast to get out to your population. It can deliver risk reductions immediately. Like in our platform, we've seen a three times reduction in uh, phishing click rates within the first three months. Um, and, and, And that can be such a huge win just to reduce the probability of an impact. Um, and, right. and easier to implement than changing complex interdependent healthcare systems.
0: Yeah, and I think that's the part of um, you know not being a technical person myself. That's the part of cybersecurity that that I think really fascinates me the most is just that human element. I mean, you know, there's there's all kinds of jokes that say you know the biggest uh, problem is the is the uh, person behind the keyboard. But but I often like to think about you know, how we make that sort of situation much more approachable and, and not so scary for non-technical people. And as you said, I mean, a doctor or a nurse, I don't want them thinking about two-factor authentication or or anything like that when they're trying to, you know, uh, save a life or anything like that. So how do we balance, you know, security and sort of user-friendliness, or, or not user-friendliness, but more sort of uh, making it make it an, an approachable and not an intimidating thing for someone to be able to manage when they're not a technical person.
1: Well, absolutely, and this is why we need to remember that cyber is a people-centric, not a technology-centric world. And that's a it's a bit of a flip, because IT has traditionally been responsible for security and cybersecurity awareness and other things typically falls in the IT department. But when you understand that the word cyber actually means and it, and it was intended to encompass three critical elements, people, control, and technology, and that a narrative of people in control of technology is a positive one. When the doctor, nurse, uh, when the pilot, when the small business owner is in control of the technology they're using and understands uh, what's going on, it's a much better story than trying to use technology to control them, which you know in science fiction is Skynet or the Terminator, or in hard right. Uh, tragic reality is the uh, the Boeing Max eight disasters where pilots lost control because technology made mistakes and took control from them. Um, mm-hmm. We've got to restore that balance. You know we've been constantly looking for a technological panacea, a silver bullet. Here we go. We've got the latest and greatest tech X. But when you work the people side of it, not only can we show that you dramatically reduce your risk faster and more effectively, dollar for dollar, you you create a culture where um people feel in control and can actually make better decisions not just about security but how they use technology to accomplish their organization's core business or mission right and is that
0: what kind of a mindset changes that for IT departments because again as a non-technical person you know i think the cybersecurity industry from my perspective you know it's very solutions based it's very technology based it's about you know you know defense in depth and layers of security and and we you know we talk about all this stuff at cira but it feels like that's changing and that there's more understanding of the of the human side of it have you found that an uphill battle when you're because i obviously boseron is a is a very well known training platform have you found that an uphill battle um, amongst customers or are people actually relieved to see that part of the equation finally being
1: addressed it really depends on the team and their perspective, and and I want to be really clear. I grew up in the IT trenches, and I'm a nerd by by nature. I'm not a programmer by by trade. I'm a an arts graduate and an MBA. But I, I, my first jobs at the University of New Brunswick was working the IT help desk as a student. So I've been there, and I and I can remember feeling frustration and. And you can fall into this negative bias. Oh, the user is stupid. And I remember sitting at technology conferences with some of the world's smartest people in cybersecurity, and and eventually someone would let that slip. Oh, you know, the stupid user problem. We need to have a system to rewrite links because you can't stop people from clicking on links. And the problem I've always had with that narrative is if an organization truly was full of stupid people, cybersecurity is the least of its worries. It's full of stupid people. They're not. Every organization is full of great, fantastic people with massive potential. People are the greatest asset of an organization. And it's time that we treated security as an enabling function, an empowerment function to that natural human talent capital. But we have to do it in a way that is role appropriate, that is engaging, that is not IT talking to the the groups, but it's explaining uh, security in their context so they can accomplish their goals. Um, and that's where we need to change the game. October is Cybersecurity Awareness Month, and I have a love-hate relationship with it. I love that we're paying attention to it, but I really wish we did it more than just October. Uh, and, and in fact, you know, numerous studies show that you have to make this a continuous part of your activities. We need to get beyond just awareness, because we've never been more aware About cybersecurity than we do in 2020. I mean, we had a presidential election tilted by the manipulation of online activities. We've had hacks galore. We've got more negative news every day. Even the federal government's getting hit with stuff. We're aware that cybersecurity is a problem. What we haven't done is effectively changed people's behaviors and measured that.
0: Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, as you may know, uh, we just released our uh, 2020 CIRA cybersecurity survey uh, just last week. And, you know, we found that, uh, I think it was something like 40% of our respondents said that they only did cybersecurity awareness training uh, annually. and And, you know, that feels like, You know, it's that kind of thing where maybe you do like a lunch and learn or or a workshop and then you forget it. And I think, you know, what you're talking about is just making it part of the culture, part of sort of your, you know, day to day process, day to day routine. Is that something that you see changing where, where more organizations are starting to bake that in to sort of their everyday?
1: Not yet, um, because they don't have the platforms and tools to, to have a sustainable effect on this. And that's starting to change. I mean, um, you know, we work together, we have this technology we've created that that we uh, that we have brought to market and it allows organizations to automate so many activities so that they can have ongoing, persistent awareness, behavior change and engagement throughout the entire year. You know, we've, we've worked with some of the largest banks in the world, and we've helped them change their approach from once a quarter fishing to once a month random fishing, targeting their entire audience, generating really interesting, statistically relevant data, not just on victimization, but also who spotted and successfully reported it and um, persistently engaging. And I can tell you from the 230 plus customers that we deal with, mostly in North America, the customers that do annual security awareness training, within three months, you lose about half of the efficacy and impact of that training and your click rates start rising again. And about six months in, as more people fall victim and you're dealing with more things, you see the rate decline, but it becomes almost like a constant wave. Whereas those that have at least uh, biannual and ideally quarterly or even the most sophisticated ones, like some of the banks that have ongoing posters as well as digital campaigns and persistent marketing, they actually see a flat fish click rate curve, almost like flattening the pandemic curve, but right. in the context of cybersecurity. So not only can I tell you it makes a difference, mm-hmm. uh, I can tell you that the persistence of that has a measurable impact. And we've got our data, but even those who who might be coming from the marketing space, you know this as well as, as anybody else. Uh, A one and done advertisement is not nearly as effective as a ongoing sustained campaign um, where you're multiply repeating the message to drive it home. Um, So persistence matters much more than perfection and one and done.
0: Yeah, absolutely. In fact, yeah, I mean, we see that all the time with our advertising campaigns you know, anytime you shut it off. If things are gonna all the numbers are going to start to go down uh, when it comes to awareness and recall the minute you shut something off. You know, I just want to go back to COVID for a second. Um, you know, again, in our survey, we found that about a third of respondents uh, received a COVID-19-themed attack. So that would be uh, something like, uh, you know, a phishing attack that said, you know, click here to get your COVID results. Or we even saw an example of a uh, fake contact tracing app that was... Um, attempting to be uh, used as a phishing uh, vector. Is that something that you've experienced, that you have data or have experienced uh, a jump in? Is Because it feels like it was sort of the perfect storm. Everyone working from home, everyone on personal devices or, or home networks, and then all of a sudden all this anxiety, and then you layer
1: on a link that says, hey, you may have COVID, click here. So we definitely saw that uptick at the outbreak of the pandemic. I mean, um, we saw the same trends that Google, that uh, Proofpoint and others were in terms of the surge of domains that were hosting malicious phishing websites related to COVID. And in the first wave of these COVID uh, fishes, it was directly that targeted specifically around the disease, its impact, your susceptibility, etc. The second wave has been even broader and it's more interesting. It's what I call the spin off effects of the pandemic. So we saw really nasty phishing campaigns that were um, you've got a scheduled Zoom meeting with HR. Tapping into the anxiety of company cutbacks, layoffs, et cetera. Right. Um, we've seen phishing campaigns around oh, here's your new work from home benefit for um, new equipment and things you're benefiting, or um, here's our new VPN tool that you need to install, or you need to change your credentials so you don't lose access to work remotely. So, you know, criminals are lazy, uh, but my God, they're not stupid. They are clever and they look for Those associated tangential uh, attacks that open up new waves of possibility. So every time we tell people about, you know, be careful. That's not really an email from Teresa Tam about COVID nineteen sent specifically to you. uh, Then they switch to, uh, well, we're doing uh, furloughs, salary cuts, and uh, benefit cuts. You better, uh, you better learn about this. And you're like, oh, that is just absolutely abysmal. Great.
0: Yeah, so that's interesting because last week at MapleSec we hosted a, a roundtable about training, and one of the things we talked a little bit about was just how you build a culture of training where you know it's um, you know inclusive and respectful and not doesn't feel like anyone's trying to trick anybody or, or or anything like that, and you know we talked about things like I'm sure you saw the famous. Um, the Tribune newspaper in Chicago did a phishing simulation where they told everyone they were getting bonuses like an hour after they had laid off 500 or 5,000 workers. I forget what it was. So I guess what I want, what I'm curious about is how do we simulate really effective phishing attacks when we don't want to sort of, go there on some of the more insidious tactics like is there is there a good way to sort of simulate without making people feel like they've been tricked or or that they're being manipulated
1: uh there there is and it is a fine balance um you know the the analogy i use is there are some fishes that you can craft they can be about sex romance layoffs these are high neurologically sort of intensive, emotionally intensive fishes that are the equivalent from a simulation standpoint of throwing dynamite in a pond. Are you gonna surface a lot? Sure. But is it incredibly destructive and counterproductive? Absolutely. So hmm. so there are boundaries. Now the boundaries that need to be established are a subject of each company's culture, risk tolerance, etc. So there may be some who have such a low risk tolerance and such a sensitive culture that fishes that would be considered within the norm in other organizations, are beyond the pale for them. Each one has to do a temperature uh, gauge. There are some clients that we work with that will not touch a a branded fish, so a fish that impersonates a real entity and uses real logos, with a 10-foot pole. Um, Mm -hmm. There are others that are perfectly comfortable impersonating Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, etc., because that's real to what the real threats are but there are, are some fishes that most people universally agree don't go there uh, or that the timing is wholesomely inappropriate. And and so romance ones I, is one I, I, I tell people, don't do it. Don't do dating websites. Don't do sex or pornography themed uh, sort of uh, fishes because yeah, it's just an HR nightmare and a half. Secondly. Make sure you're actually cooperating with other groups inside your organization. I remember when I did a phishing campaign at UNB. Um, I innocently sort of simulated a uh, vacation fish, and it was a. Uh, it looks like your vacation had uh, access had been granted. Here's your days off, and it was at like middle of April. And you know, I wanted to see what the click rate would look like for that. I didn't tell HR I was doing it. Well, we had a a thirty five percent victimization rate on that fish, and uh, HR got flooded with some. Very angry phone calls about people's vacation days. Um, And they weren't super happy with me on that one. So I should have cooperated much better with other Mm -hmm. departments before hitting certain topics.
0: Yeah, Uh, it's funny. We actually just had one similar here at CIRA where uh, they uh, got the cooperation of HR and did a sort of HR-related phishing simulation, and the, our director of HR was involved, and and she still got a few uh, emails, but they were usually there were emails more like, "Hey, did you know about this?" or "Or uh, is this real?" But I think that yeah, that that element of making sure that other groups are in the loop, but also of creating sort of a culture where it's about learning and it's about getting better as opposed to judging or as opposed to like, you know, I'm trying to catch you so that I can give you some sort of punishment. H- how do you go about creating that culture where it feels like a positive thing for everyone to continually improve as opposed to a negative thing to catch people?
1: Well, I, I think it's it's about telling people, first of all, um, I always encourage organizations to tell their team they're going to be fishing them. I believe in being transparent on that. Um, If anything, when you say you're doing phishing campaigns, people actually start paying more attention, at least for a few more months. Um, So you actually get a net gain in real risk reduction because they're more on their game. Um, So win. Uh, number two, train before you simulate. So give them the tools, the frameworks, how to recognize a fish, both the rules-based approach in terms of links, sender, et cetera, as well as the emotional approach. How does this make you feel? Is it weird, is it unusual, et cetera? Then give them a chance to practice what they've learned. You know, a lot of clients sometimes come to us and say, we wanna do a baseline and they're useless. I can tell you right now they're fishing your organization, if you've never fished your organization with a generic one, we can get at least one in ten with a highly targeted one we'll get between 30 and fifty percent there. We've baselined. We want it to be a learning reinforcement opportunity. Um, and one way that we've done it within our platform is you know if it's the first time you've ever fallen victim for a fish, your score, this personal cyber risk score that you can see and influence, takes a small hit. But if you complete the remedial training, learn from it, and report your fish and it's your first time you actually earn all the points you lost and get some new ones because the behavior that we're reinforcing is it's important to learn from mistakes and it's important to ask for help. And those are the two most important cultural signals that we need to do there. The worst thing organizations can do is set up some kind of arbitrary threshold that like three clicks uh, you know, in a year and we could fire you. Um, which is less common in Canada. I am not a lawyer or an HR expert, but I guarantee you it's probably not a good idea to do it in Canada, Um, but more common in the United States.
0: Right. Yeah. I I don't know if, I think to me, as someone who, again, is non-technical, it always feels better to try to teach people and to bring them along in the process than try to trick them. And of course, I'm a comms person. I'm a mark comms person. So, you know, just from a messaging standpoint, that always feels like a better approach.
1: Oh, absolutely. And, and, and like, let's put all the cards down on the table face up here. The right fish with the right message targeted at the wrong time to the right person will absolutely succeed. There is not a human on the planet that is 100% defensible against social engineering 100% of the time. So if you're, if you're, if your metric is 0% click rate, 0% susceptibility, don't even go there. So it's about learning opportunities and about reasonable expectations and setting thresholds. And more importantly, too much in this industry, we focus on the click rate. Uh, Did people fall victim? How many people spotted it and reported it is 10 times as important to your organization and is a better metric for resiliency than click rates are for risk.
0: Right. Well, um, I wanted to uh, just sort of finish up here and talking a little bit about, you know, we talked about COVID. We've talked about building a cybersecurity culture. It seems likely that we're in this sort of new normal for at least the short term, if not the medium term. And I'm wondering, you know, what are the next steps here to sort of, I guess, put more of a uh a a focus on this new normal of working from home remote work because it seems like that's not going to change even when the pandemic is over it feels like there's a permanent at least partial shift to remote work is there anything there that we need to be doing to sort of change the mentality as we move forward into this sort of new era of uh you know the threat landscape no longer just being confined to the four walls of your office
1: Uh, absolutely um We need to create the processes, policy and education to enable um, productive, safe and secure work from home. And we've actually created material and made it available for free for any organization to download that talks about how you can educate your employees about what they need to be thinking about from working from home everything from where can they do their work in the home and avoiding things like if you live in a high-rise apartment building with lots of visibility into your windows or you're on the ground floor of that building and people can see in maybe you don't want to have your dual monitor set up facing the window um, so people can see it and and i'm not semi-joking i once uh, stayed in an airbnb in toronto near a major business's offices during tax season time and i could Very easily with some of the great high powered zooms that are out there now read what's going on in the screen. So, you know, screen protectors, uh, positioning, is it okay to print stuff off and and have a physical copy of work or save data on external shared drives? When do you use VPNs? When do you don't have to use VPNs? Like explaining to people the ways to enable them to work homely. Work from home safely like personal use of devices versus work use of devices those are really important and the emphasis has to be if you're going to put people to work remotely you as the employer have to teach and train them and sometimes you're going to talk about topics that would have been considered non-related to the enterprise or business context like teaching your employees how to make sure their routers are patched and their wi-fi is secure because i guarantee you if you're an interesting enough target uh, I'm going to start looking at your executive employees and who's working from home and I'm going to be hanging out in that van, uh, breaking into their wifi because it's going to be a hell of a lot easier than uh, ever going after your business um, was before.
0: Yeah. And I feel like that's one of those things where um, one of my colleagues at work often says, uh, these are the type of skills that are not just great for uh, working from home, but they're just good skills to have for everyday life. I mean, You know, I know I have two kids and they do some, uh, courses and some training on how to, you know, be safe online and that kind of thing. And I, I I feel like developing that sort of street smarts of cybersecurity and training and awareness is something that, you know, if you're teaching your employees how to, like you said, how to patch their routers or how to make sure that their IOT devices are, are up to date. Um, not only are you helping protect your, your, your enterprise network, but you're actually giving them great skills that they can bring to the rest of their lives.
1: Absolutely, and and your your earlier point about building a culture of security, you know, when people are are, are doing this training, uh, oftentimes it's oh god, corporate training, click 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 to the computer training done, and it's it's because it's all about what's in it for the enterprise or uh, compliance for the enterprise. But when you create something that's what's in it for me, W I F M is the most powerful force um, known to employee engagement. Uh, we, what's in it for me, you can protect your home, your kids, your family. Uh, well, wait a second here. I, I, I feel more bought in my, my employer actually cares. This isn't just about their needs. Um, it's not a distraction from the things I'm being held accountable to regardless of my role. This can actually be applied in multiple ways. I care more about that. So definitely making what's in it for me work for you, uh, is huge.
0: And I would imagine that's more important than ever. Now that you can't lure people in with free pizza, at uh, lunch and learns
1: <laughs> so
0: uh, which which yeah, is yeah. another which is another uniquely work from home uh, problem to have um david thank you so much uh for your time maybe if you can just let everyone know uh, where they can find uh, you online and um, i know you do a lot of writing and a lot of different uh, media appearances so where can people find you
1: Sure. I'm on uh, Twitter at David Shipley. Uh, you can check out our website for blog posts. I'm typically on uh, Global News Radio, Toronto, Edmonton, Vancouver, you know, at least once a week, sometimes <laughs> uh, more, depending on how crazy the world is. But, uh, yeah. And thanks so much, Spencer and Sarah, for the opportunity to talk about this, for being such a fantastic partner and, uh, you know, helping us bring this a mission of empowering people and putting them in control of technology across the country and helping Canadian organizations that need it the most, you know, our schools, our hospitals, our governments, our small and mid-sized businesses. Um, so grateful for this, uh, this opportunity.
0: Yeah, no, thank you, David. And it's been a great partnership for us as well. Right. So thanks a lot, David, and uh, have a great day. You too. As regular listeners of the podcast will know, every episode we like to highlight one of the projects from our community investment program. This episode, we chat with Ben McHarg and Scott Henwood from New Brunswick Community College about an interesting project that is bringing cybersecurity education to K-12 students. Okay, so today we're chatting with Ben McHarg and Scott Henwood from the community college about a really interesting cybersecurity program that they have started through the Canadian Investment Program funding. Ben, Scott, Nice to see you. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. So tell me a little bit about this program. You know, my kids are in uh, uh, grades three and five, and uh, it seems like maybe now they can help prevent hackers at power plants. Uh, tell me a little bit more about that, because that sounds really interesting.
2: Yeah, sure. I'll, uh, I'll kind of give you a quick overview, and uh, you can ask away after that. Um, so what we're doing is actually building a critical infrastructure security operations center, which is a lot of fancy words, but really it means we're... Implementing all of the security tools and systems that you would need to actually monitor uh, the industrial control networks, at either a power plant or a wastewater treatment, uh, healthcare networks, uh, basically to be able to monitor those and detect if any intrusions have happened into that network. And our goal is to be able to actually give those K 12 students the ability to come in and look at some real world uh, scenarios. Uh, and actually uh, get their hands on the keyboard and actually use some of these security tools that we uh, spend a lot of time teaching our regular students at the college event, uh, but to pass that knowledge on to the, the younger kids in the K to 12.
0: So how would that work? Uh, I, I think I find K to twelve really interesting. Cause so how would it work down at like say the grade one level or the grade three level? Like how does it work for for smaller kids? Because I'm I'm really liking this idea of like an army of uh, of K to twelve defenders of uh, of public and private networks. How do, how would that work from it from that perspective? Yeah, no, it's a
2: great question. And actually, uh, I'm pretty impressed in general with the New Brunswick uh, education system because they've already been integrating a lot of cybersecurity. Uh, training and awareness in the high schools and middle school level and they're even working on getting it uh, rolled down into the, the younger grades as well. In general there's quite a bit of uh, cybersecurity awareness and education that the New Brunswick Department of Education building into their programs. The intent of this is to build on top of that and also uh, take it from cyber awareness and uh, you know your classical uh, IT type systems you think about where websites are hacked or you know Someone's email gets compromised, and to add on to that, the industrial control side of things. So they actually get some exposure and understanding that uh, there's almost like two types of networks out there that need protecting: our classic IT and these OT industrial control systems. So we're, we're certainly hoping to at least raise the awareness and give them some of that initial exposure. Make sure they're aware of what you know future careers there might be in those fields as well. Obviously to uh, to help uh, build the workforce out here in new Brunswick and across Canada for that matter.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting because I guess this is, I mean, a whole new career path that, that has just opened up. And I think, you know, I guess it's sort of like a little bit uh, law enforcement, a little bit IT, uh, maybe a little bit of spy in there somewhere. I, I could see it being really, uh, really attractive for younger kids and actually for kids of all ages.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of times, um, you know, some people aren't necessarily attracted to the classic IT role that they think of. And this is a whole different space where uh, the more that they're aware of uh, these roles that exist and the high demand for those roles, giving them that intro knowledge and, and maybe a bit of a, a taste for it at a young age will certainly, we hope, drive more people towards the industry, people are needed.
0: Yeah, and maybe tell me a little bit about um, how the program actually will be run. Um, so I know, obviously, COVID has has changed a lot about how we learn and teach and, and do pretty much everything. So maybe talk to me a little bit about how the program will actually be implemented in the schools.
2: Yeah, so absolutely. So our, our original intent, obviously, back before COVID was that we would have, actually be able to coordinate uh, visits to the actual physical campus in St. John, where the CI SOC will be. Um, we're building it out so that it looks like your classic security operations center that we some people picture in their head, right? Big display boards and alerts and things flashing of different systems being <laughs> compromised, right? Yeah. So that was obviously a, a big, nice draw to have that physical room. But what we'll do in our current times is we'll facilitate that through online meetings using uh, you know Teams and Zoom and whatever application that the schools want to use with us to actually In all intents and purposes, we'll probably be able to reach a lot more students virtually than we ever could physically going through the the actual room.
0: Right. And so, what is the output for this program for the kids? Is there some sort of certification that they get? Or I would imagine that might differ depending on how old they are. Uh, So, how does that how does that actually? Um, Like, what what do they get at the end? Or is there any opportunity for them to get some sort of certification that that they can then carry with them through to post-secondary or how does that work?
2: Yeah, no, there there was no intent there yet for an actual certification. Um, The curriculum and the content that we'll deliver to them uh, will kind of be up to each uh, school to see where it fits. Uh, There are some technology courses that are offered at the high school level where this could actually fit in and be like a module within one of their courses potentially. Uh, Which could go towards their their credits and whatnot, Uh, but really we're just making it available and and hopefully they'll integrate it as best they can at each at each point or each grade level.
0: Okay, and when when is the training? Is it already underway, or when will it be starting?
2: Yeah, so we're we're underway from a construction perspective of the physical room. There's a lot of equipment and software and and things that need to be uh, put in place first. <laughs> uh, so we're really targeting right now that it will be in the month of January that we'll be commissioning it. Uh, so we'll be catching students uh, January through to their end of the year in, in the spring.
0: Okay, and is that exclusively for kids in the New Brunswick system or are there opportunities for other kids across the country to get involved or for, or I guess for teachers to to get involved would be important as well?
2: Well, you know what? That's a great question. Since uh, since (laughs) we're now uh, virtually uh, providing the access uh, to the environment, there is no real uh, technology limitation to say we couldn't. Uh, It would all boil down to scheduling. Most of our things are recorded as well now, so certainly the content of the demos could be recorded and shared. It's a great opportunity to reach out beyond New Brunswick, which would have been the original and a physical plan, uh, to the virtual Canada-wide opportunity. Now, we don't have direct contacts into the education departments in the other provinces. We're not opposed to, uh, to right. making that happen.
0: Right. Okay. Well, that sounds really interesting. So where can people go to find out more about the program?
2: Yeah. So uh, mbcc.ca. Uh, there's certainly all of our programs are listed there. There'll be different uh, news releases about the SOC project specifically, but also any of the courses we offer, like the cybersecurity one-year uh, post-diploma. Uh, They can see all the courses that make up that and uh, see if they're interested in that as well.
0: Okay and obviously uh, at CIRA we're obviously huge supporters of your your work so we'll be sure to help promote that as well because I think it'd be really interesting for teachers across the country. My wife's actually a teacher, high school teacher, and I know that they're always looking for engaging new curriculum and this seems like uh, perfectly suited for our times.
2: Excellent, we're here and uh, willing and able to help.
0: Okay, so that's it for the episode. I'd like to thank David Shipley, Ben McHarg, and Scott Henwood for joining me. As always, if you have feedback about the podcast, email me at dot at syra.ca. I'd be happy for any guest recommendations, topics you might want me to explore, or any feedback about the show. As always, if you're looking for links to anything that I've talked about on the program, you can visit syra.ca slash podcast. Thanks so much for listening, and